And uh, I just want to go ahead, the name of my sermon tonight is just called Delighting in Darkness. Delighting in Darkness. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, 25 years ago, we, I was 16 years old, we went on our first date, uh, which means I was born in the 1980s. And uh, make no apologies, the 1980s was the greatest decade to ever have been raised in. We have, we ha thank you, all of my uh, 40-somethings, late 30-somethings, yeah. Uh, we had a fantastic childhood, man. We, we played all the time. We got into trouble, and, uh, you know, we, we rode bikes without helmets, and uh, the world wasn't, you know, bubble-wrapped for us, and somehow we survived. We drank out of garden hoses and uh, weren't poisoned, and, and thank God for that. But one of the things I love most about the 80s is we had some great movies, great movies. It's all right. We did. We had some great movies. Anybody seen The Karate Kid? Daniel LaRusso, The Karate Kid, great movie, great movie. Um, you know, we had, we had Back to the Future, and uh, excellent, fun movie to watch as a kid growing up. Uh, we had Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Top Gun. You know, we had, some, we had some really good movies, some movies I watched back then I probably shouldn't have watched. Um, you know, we had Rambo, you know, that we, we all enjoyed as a young boy uh, that we had. And one of my favorite movies from the 1980s, is a movie called The Goonies. The Goonies. Oh, look at that. That's why Pastor loves you, Matthew. You're already a step ahead of me. The Goonies was a fantastic movie for a young boy growing up in the 1980s. You see, it was a, a group of young kids that uh, were uh, no circumstance of their own doing. They were forced to leave the area that they were living in and their friend group, which was known as the Goonies, was going to break up. And so they were uh, rummaging through some things, packing up some things in the attic and one of them knocks over a, 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 a framed piece of art and in the back of that artwork was a treasure map, and uh, which of course began the uh, the plot of the movie is they ha had to go on one last adventure before their gang was dis dismembered. And uh, they had this treasure map from a pirate by the name of One-Eyed Willie. And, you know, to a, to a six-year-old boy, that was fantastic. You know, you got pirates, you got buried treasure, and you got adventure, you've got booby traps, and you've got secret codes and obstacles to get through. And that's essentially the consensus of the whole movie is they're going on this treasure map. And ultimately, they're being chased by the bad guys in the movie, the Fratellis, a mother and her two sons. And uh, they find the treasure deep, deep, deep inside of a cave after many obstacles. And uh, it was very deep in a cave. And they found the pirate ship where the treasure was hidden. And they had to go through a trap door and get to the, to the deep part of the pirate ship in order to find One-Eyed Willie's treasure. And for a young boy in the 1980s, that was, that was just a great thing to play, was buried treasure. And I can remember the kids in our neighborhood, uh, you know, we would play buried treasure and, and we would make a treasure map with some, some hidden things where somebody would have to try to go through the subdivision and find certain things and, and try to find the treasure that we had buried. It was amazing to me that, that One-Eyed Willie and, and consequently all the buried treasure that we did, when you have something of value 
and you have something that is, is treasured to you, you don't leave it out in the open. You normally try to conceal it in something. And almost always it is found in a dark place. Think of the things that you have in your home, the most valuable things. Most likely you have a safe somewhere in your home. That is where your marriage certificate is at. That is where your life insurance policies are at. That is where your social security cards are at. That is where your grandma's engagement ring is at that she gave to you. And one day you hope to give to your son or daughter when they're ready to get married. It is your most cherished, precious treasures that go into a safe place. And almost always that safe place is covered and in darkness. I think of when a husband and wife come together in the natural and they conceive a child. That child, that treasure that is growing inside the womb of a woman, it is in a covered place. It is in a place of darkness. There is a, there is a fantastic study. In fact, when that, when that moment of life happens, there actually is a small release of light when that moment happens. But for the rest of the pregnancy, there's covering and there's darkness. Okay. When a farmer has, uh, you know, earns his income with growing crops in a field, he doesn't take seeds and lay them on the top of the soil. There is an unearthing, and the seeds are planted into the ground and covered up. There's a covering, and there's darkness, okay? Are we, everybody following what I'm saying so far? Treasures are often covered and hidden. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 46 says, How be it true first not which is spiritual, but with that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. Pastor has quoted this so many different times that natural truths bring about spiritual revelation. And when we're studying and thinking about things that we value and treasures in our life, treasures in the natural, and that they are often found in a dark place and they are often found covered and hidden, could it be true that things in the spiritual are often found in dark places and often found hidden and covered. I came across this verse in Isaiah 45, verse 3. I've, uh, I'm sure I've read it before, uh, but this past year when I was doing my Bible reading, when I read it, I actually saw it. And there's a difference between reading it and seeing it and having God it's almost like a pause in the Holy Ghost when you, when you read that. And, and don't be too quick to just finish the, the rest of the chapter and check your box on your, on your Bible reading chart. Stop there and let it, let it sink into you. Isaiah 45 verse 3 says this, And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest knowest that I, the Lord, which call thee by name and the God of Israel, God is saying in, in this chapter in Isaiah, notice the exactness of the word of God. He says, I will give you the treasures of darkness, not the treasures in darkness, the treasures of darkness, and I will give you hidden riches of secret places. 
You see, we, we get into our mind and we think that, you know, God is the God of good and the God of light and the, he can bless me in good times. And Satan is the God of darkness and the God of hard times and the God of storms and, and he's going to attack me. And if things are going great, then I must be blessed and I must be doing really good in my life. But if everything else is falling apart, then Satan's really after me. The way I read this and the way I have studied this scripture out, I'm telling you, not only does light work for God, but he's so great that even darkness answers to him. Even your hard times answer to him. Because there are some treasures in your life that God will only unearth in the darkness. And there are treasures that God says, you know what, I want to bring that out of you, so I'm going to allow you to go into a dark season in your life. I'm going to allow you to enter into a place of struggle. And it's not for your destruction. The darkness, when you're a child of God, the dark seasons in your life, that darkness is never meant for your destruction. It's designed for your development. Because God is more committing, committed to, to creating character in you than making sure that you're comfortable. God doesn't care about your comfortability. He doesn't care about mine. We're his masterpiece. We're his workmanship. And he's trying to create something perfect and something beautiful in us. And he will unearth those treasures inside of you and I. But he uses darkness in hidden places to do it. Isn't God amazing? That he can do that. Think of this. It sounds crazy. All you got to do is go back to the very beginning, the very, very first story in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Earth was without form and void. And what? Darkness. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. Darkness and confusion and chaos were ingredients that God used in his hands to create stars and our planets, and our sun, and our universe, and this earth, and, and think about you and I. All of that was created. God had every natural resource available at his disposal when he decided to create you and I. But what did he choose to do? He reached down just like the farmer does. He goes into that dirt, and out of that darkness, he pulls up some dirt, and he says, you know what? This is something good that I can create humanity out of. This is something that I will be able to create a temple that I'm going to live in. Isn't God incredible that he has the power to do that for you and I? I think about Aaron in the Old Testament. Aaron was Moses' right-hand man. They get out of the nation of Israel, or I'm sorry, the nation of Egypt, out of slavery and out of bondage, and they uh, get through the Red Sea. They come to Mount Sinai where the law was poured out. Moses knows that he's got to go to the top of the mountain, and, and God instructs him, says, hey, you got to come up here, but I want you to create a fence around this mountain because if anybody touches the mountain besides you, they're going to die. So Moses decided where to put that fence. And it's an amazing, it's amazing revelation of what the shepherd in our lives is. The pastor in your life. The pastor of this house. He's the one who decides where the mountain stops and the, the rest begins. He's the one who puts up those safety fences in our life. 
It's, it's not my decision to do that. It's his. He decides where that is. And I'm so thankful for the man of God that puts those safety boundaries in my life that keeps me protected. But Moses goes up to the top of the mountain. This is where he receives the law, what we call the Ten Commandments, okay, found in Exodus 20. And, and not only is he getting the law from God himself, but he is receiving the instructions or the blueprints for what we know as the tabernacle of Moses, you know, where we have the, you know, the outer courts, the holy, holy place, the holy of holies, the Ark of the Covenants, all of that, all the curtains and all the, where every metal piece, everything in great detail was given to Moses on the top of this mountain. But another thing besides that, which was given to Moses was the, the job promotion, if you will, of Aaron. Aaron was to be the high priest. In fact, anyone from the lineage of Aaron is known today as an Aaronotic priest because they come from the lineage of Aaron. It's a big deal, especially in the Old Testament. But Aaron is getting his promotion, and he doesn't even know it. On the top, Moses is up there for 40 days. And when Moses comes down after leaving Aaron in charge... Aaron had decided it was best to take the jewelry of the people and make a false god and to dance naked around that false god because Moses was gone and he didn't think he was coming back. Has anybody screwed up that bad? Anybody in the room? Can you imagine? I want you to imagine. Pastor, now don't imagine too much. Keep it, keep it PG, all right? But imagine... Aren't we thankful for Pastor Mike? I said, aren't we thankful for Pastor Mike? Can we imagine? Pastor Hoffman's on his way, Mississippi. Let's, let's just say he's there for 40 days. And, you know, Pastor Mike, you need to hold down the fort while I'm gone. I'm, I'll be back in 40 days. And Pastor walks through the door, and God forbid, not only are we not serving Jesus Christ, we're worshiping a false god, and we all have our clothes off. Can you imagine? Now put yourself in the shoes of Aaron when the pastor comes back. Imagine what he felt. Imagine those emotions that, that he had to process through. Guilt, shame, embarrassment, humility, regret. Any of those sound familiar? I've dealt with a few of those before. It, it was a dark place for Aaron. I promise you it was a very dark season for Aaron. But notice what God didn't do. God knew what was going on at the base of that mountain. And he still said, here's Aaron's promotion. Because your mistake isn't big enough to violate God's plan for your life. There's nothing you've done that can cause God to say, you know what? I'm going to withhold anointing from this person, and I don't think I can use them because their mistake is just too great. God can always use anybody he chooses to, and that's what happened with Aaron. But what was the reason, right? We're talking about treasures, delighting in darkness. That's a hard thing to do. But in the shoes of Aaron... Looking forward, remember, he's the high priest now. 
Everybody in Israel, when they sinned, they had to bring a sin offering. And they had to put their hand on that sin offering and confess what they've done. And the sin that was on them transferred to the sacrifice. And Aaron had to be there. He had to hear everybody's dirty laundry. I believe God knew. I got to tear you down, Aaron. I got to allow you to go through humility and embarrassment of what you did. Because you're going to be in the audience hearing everybody else's mistakes. And I can't have a judgmental priest. I have to have a priest with humility. I got to have a priest that knows what mercy is and what forgiveness is. It was a treasure that God revealed in Aaron in the darkness. It was riches in hidden places, secret places. I think about Peter. Peter was the one, one of the disciples, you know, honestly, I, I, I very much admire Peter, but I, I think he was the front runner. I think out of the people in the disciples, he was the leader. He was the one who God revealed, you're the Christ. You're the anointed one. Everybody else kind of missed it. Peter understood who Jesus Christ was. You're God in flesh. You're the savior of the world. And because of that revelation that God gave Peter, his name was changed. It was changed to Cephas. Cephas means the rock, okay? I think about a rock. Think about a, a giant boulder, if you will. It's hard to move. It's pretty persistent. It's steady. It's strong. It's consistent. It's pretty doggone determined. And that is my mental model of, of Simon Peter, but rocks don't deny Jesus three times. They don't turn their back when the going gets tough. Rocks don't do that. It's my personal belief that he had a name change, but God was still changing the person. That was a process that happened. And we find in Luke 22, Satan actually comes to Jesus and he wants to sift Peter. He wants to take him into a dark place, wants to challenge him. And Jesus says, don't worry, I've prayed for you, that your faith wouldn't fail you. And after that is when Jesus says, you know what, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter adamantly, adamantly says, no, I won't. And we all know the story. That's exactly what happened. Can you imagine can you imagine as the Messiah of the world, and you knew who he was, is getting beaten and tortured and taken captive, and you're denying him, and he looks at you after the third denial? You imagine after walking on water, after seeing, seeing Jesus feed the 5,000, that denial, not once, Three times. You imagine the guilt? Think about the depression. I believe Peter went into three days of depression. Three days of despair. I get some insight into this. One of the gospels after the resurrection records it this way. The angels tell the ladies at the tomb, 
He said, go tell the disciples and Peter. Tells me a few things. Quite possibly, Peter wasn't considering himself a disciple anymore. After that denial, it's quite possible Peter wasn't with the remaining ten. The angel had to specify, hey, go tell the disciples and make sure you go tell Peter. But it was that distinction that gives me insight into nobody took this harder than Peter. It says, out of everybody you tell, he's the only one who was mentioned by name. You make sure you tell the disciples, but you've got to tell Peter that he's alive, that he's risen, because Peter went through such sorrow and such grief while Jesus was in the tomb. But it was because of the sorrow and the grief that the resurrection mattered so much. Without the denial, the resurrection wasn't as great to Peter. It wasn't until the depression happened that the joy of the resurrection was through the roof. Is everybody following me? Because God knew there's coming a time in Acts chapter 2. God already knows what's coming. And he says, I've got to have a preacher who doesn't just have the name of a rock. I've got to have a preacher who is the rock. Because the gospel has to be preached to the world for the very first time. And it was Peter's job to make sure that that message got delivered. But God created the boldness and the faith and the determination and the consistency of Peter. He created that in the darkness of depression and despair and sorrow and regret. God will use your dark times to reveal treasure in you. Even darkness works for God. You remember the story of Jacob? Jacob steals the birthright. He steals the, uh, the blessing from his brother. His brother wants to kill him. Jacob's running for his life. He comes to a place, decides to take a nap, has a dream of angels going up, angels coming down, wakes up in the morning, and he says, surely this is the house of God. And he names that place Bethel. It was at night that Jacob had this dream. It was in darkness that he actually found the house of God. He goes to work for his uncle Laban. God blesses him exceedingly. He comes back to try to mend things up with his brother. He's on his way back. And in, in Genesis 32, verse 21, the Bible is very, very clear. It says, he went to present himself before him and he lodged that night in the company. This is right before he wrestles with the angel of God. This was right before it was night when he's wrestling with that angel and something inside of Jacob is determined not to let the angel of God go. And it was in the darkness that God decided, you know what? There's going to be a nation one day. There's going to be 12 tribes one day. I don't need a Jacob. I need an Israel. And it was in the darkness of night in a wrestling match, in a struggle that God unearthed the treasure that is Israel. God dug it up inside of him. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't pleasant. Can you imagine wrestling with an angel all night long? 
They're stronger than we are. They're bigger than we are. They're tougher than we are. I promise you that. But Jacob fought and wrestled and God revealed the treasure in the darkness. We've heard of the story of Saul. Saul was somebody in the New Testament that was actually killing Christians. And again, God says, that's somebody I can use. Yeah, anybody ever killed a Christian? Ever killed anybody? God still can use you. There's nothing too great that he can't use. Saul is at the stoning of Stephen. He's holding the letters in his hand. He's, he's got the garments. He's watching this happen. Stephen's last words as he's getting beaten with rocks is forgive them. They know not what they do. What a powerful way to pray. What a powerful prayer in the darkest time of your life is to pray a prayer of forgiveness for somebody who's causing your pain. And it was at that time, my belief, it was the beginning of Saul's conversion. He's on the road to Damascus. He's not converted yet because he's still got the papers to kill all the Christians in Damascus. And at high noon, there's a bright light that knocks him off of his horse. You see, the letters were already written. There were people in Damascus that were getting ready to die. But God interrupted the plan. You see, there is no weapon formed against you that can prosper. Even if Satan's already got the death notice and it's in route, God can put his hand down and say, I don't think so. He can interrupt it to preserve you and I. But Saul gets knocked off of this horse. And the Bible says, he says, who art thou, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus, whom thou persecute. Saul was persecuting the Christians, but God took that personal. And it says, the Bible says that in Acts 9, 8, he was blind. Saul got blinded by this light that knocked him off of the horse. He goes three days, no eating, goes to a guy by the name of Ananias, lays hands on him, prays for him. And Saul's whole world was in darkness. Imagine not seeing after you've been seeing your whole life. What must that have been? Now you had to have somebody lead you. You had to have somebody guide you. You were stumbling around. I, I don't know what mentally that toll would take on you. But Saul was dealing with that after this experience. But it was in the darkness of blindness that God decides to fill Saul with the power of the Holy Ghost. And Saul becomes Paul because God unearthed the treasure that was inside of him. But he did it in a time and a place of darkness. I think about the cross. Quite possibly, spiritually, one of the darkest days that we've ever had. You imagine Messiah walking among us and the religious people are the ones who crucified him. The religious people are the ones who betrayed him. Okay. I can't imagine the darkness of the world when God in flesh, love robed in flesh was walking among us. 
and we decided to reject him. We decided to, to nail him to a cross. What must that have been, the spiritual darkness of that time? Must that have been like? But darkness also makes an appearance on the cross in the natural. Jesus Christ is nailed to that cross, and the Bible is clear that there was an eclipse that the sun was blotted out and darkness came upon the covering of the cross. And it was in that darkness that Jesus uttered these words, forgive them, and it is finished. Because it was in the darkness that the blood of Calvary was first set in motion. It was in the darkness of a day that redemption became available to you and I. God used that window of darkness to unearth the treasure of forgiveness, to have blood and water come from his side that allows us remission of sins in his name. It was in darkness that God chose to do and to reveal that treasure to you and I. And they take him from that cross. And where do they put him? They put him in a tomb. And tombs back then, they were caves. They're just holes cut out of sides of mountains. And they put a big old stone in the front and just took that corpse and put it in there. Has anybody ever been down in cave diving, deep cave diving? Nobody. Y'all need to be a little more adventurous. Brooklyn did. Praise God. Caves are dark. If you don't have light, there is no light in caves, especially the further you get in. They're blocking the only natural light with a big stone. I promise you, that tomb was a dark place. But on the third day, in a dark place, the spirit that left on the cross came back into a body. And that body was resurrected, not just so that people would know that he was the Messiah, but that resurrection is what gives you and I the power to receive the Holy Ghost. And when you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, it's resurrection power. What died in the, in the water baptism is now resurrected by the infilling of the Spirit. But God chose a dark place. He chose a dark place. I've taught this before, but I, I think that it, it bears repeating there's a parable that Jesus taught in Matthew 13, verse 44. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hides it and for joy thereof. And he goes and he sells everything that he has and he buys that field. I've thought my whole life that that verse was about finding Jesus Christ. I've thought my whole life that's got to be that's got to be the gospel right there that Jesus is trying to explain to us that, that when you find Jesus Christ and you find this glorious gospel and make no mistake, it is a treasure. It is a treasure worth everything you've got. It is a treasure that is more important than anything else in your entire life. But is that what Jesus is trying to tell us in Matthew 13, verse 44. If it is, there's some things that don't make sense to me with this verse. It says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, that when you find it, 
Can, is there anybody in this room that can say that they found Jesus Christ? I know we kind of say that from time to time. But there's a verse in Scripture that says, He has chosen you to be in Him before the foundation of the world. It's so clear to me. Nobody comes to God except the Spirit draws him. You didn't come to God. You didn't find God. God found you before there was ever a planet, and he's been drawing you from the day you were born. You can't find God. After it says you found it, it said he hides it. I don't care how much power you got. You cannot hide the gospel. You cannot hide Jesus Christ. He's bigger than you are. He's bigger than this church. He's bigger than the United Pentecostal Church International. God can have a harvest in any denomination he chooses to. You cannot hide the gospel. Even if you could, it'd be found. He would reveal it and unearth it. Then the, then the verse says, for joy thereof, you go and you sell everything you have and you buy the field. Or you buy the gospel. Or you buy salvation. It's not for sale. Even if it was, there's no way you could afford it. There's not enough money on the planet to afford remission of sins, forgiveness, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. There's only one price that allows that to happen, and you and I aren't qualified to pay that price. Only God in flesh is, because only he is without sin. He who, was, who knew no sin was made sin. There's no way this is talking about the gospel. It can't be talking about gospel and Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It can't be. But notice what this verse begins with. It says, again, again, the kingdom of heaven. It's an extension of something that he's already said. He explained something, and he says, hey, you know what? I'll explain it again. I'll kind of reword it and tell you the same thing which I explained. So all you have to do is go to Matthew 13, 37. It's just a few verses before this. He taught a parable. The disciples came to him and said, hey, you need to explain. Can you explain to us that parable? This is what Jesus said when they asked him for an explanation. It says, he answered and said unto them, he that sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. When you use this verse in conjunction with the verse that we read before this, you understand the person putting the treasure in the field or the good seed in the field is the Son of Man. Notice that's a capital S. That's only reserved for one person. That's God in flesh. That's the Messiah. That's Jesus Christ. He's the one putting the the seed in the ground or the treasure in the ground. Jesus says, you know what? The field is the world. So we don't got to wonder about what the field is anymore. In Matthew 13, 44, 
it says here that the good seed are the children of the kingdom. So when you understand Matthew 13, 37, and you read the extension of that with the, again, the kingdom of heaven, you understand that the kingdom of heaven is treasure hid in the field. That treasure is the children of the kingdom hidden in the field, which is the world. You're the treasure. You and I are the treasure. That God, before the foundation of the world, before there was ever a thought of creating the universe, God evaluated what he was going to do. And I promise you, he saw you. He saw a church on the other side of the book of Acts. He saw the children of the kingdom. And he says, you know what? It's going to cost me everything. And it did cost him everything. That's why God didn't send his son separate from himself. Don't you believe that for a minute? The Bible says there's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. If God sent someone else to lay down his life for you, that someone else loves you more than God does. You can't have a God who is love send somebody else to die for you. God came himself because it cost, it had to cost him something. And he said, you know what? You're worth the cost. I'm going to have to buy the whole world. And there's going to be people in this world that hate me. There's going to be people in this world that reject me and that want nothing to do with me. But I have a church. There is a church that I see as a treasure in the field. And I'm going, willing to spend everything that I have to buy that church, to buy that, that church in the book of Acts. And, and it's what I believe we're experiencing today. We know that, that the treasure in the field is you and I. And we know the world is the field. There's a, there's a darkness in this world. It's, um, it's a darkness that was around in the days of Noah. There's a darkness that was around in the days of, of Jesus Christ walking upon this earth. But I'm convinced that, that what is going on here is God is allowing the world to become a very dark place. He's allowing it to become a very evil, perverse place. Because in the darkness of the world, the church is revealed. You and I are unearthed in the midst of this darkness. Isn't God amazing? Can we stand and put our hands together for the Lord tonight? Mighty Jesus, we thank you, Lord. God, there is none like you. Oh, Jesus, I praise you, Lord, today. Thank you for the darkness, mighty God. Thank you for the darkness. It's not easy, church. It's, I'll just be honest with you. It's not easy learning how to delight in darkness. But if we can learn to identify the dark seasons in our life and remember that God will give you the treasures of darkness, it makes it a little bit easier. We know that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, but only the just get the treasures revealed in the rain. Only the just get hidden riches from secret places revealed. Can we come on up to the front? 
I wonder if this message has resonated to anybody in this room. I know, uh, give it time serving God. You'll, you'll come across some hard times. That's just a fact. But when we understand that that hard time, that season in our life, when you feel like everything is falling apart, treasures, treasures are getting revealed. God's unearthing something in you. But we're going to go ahead and sing. I just wonder if we couldn't learn how to thank God for our dark days. If we couldn't worship God for the hard times. I promise you, church, when you can master this, Satan won't know what to do with you. When you can master this, you start looking for treasure. It's getting dark out. Where's the treasure? Where's the treasure at? God's doing something good. God works. Listen, God works the night shift. You may be sleeping and slumbering. He never does. He works the night shift. So why don't we take a few minutes, just celebrate God for the dark days. And, uh, you know, if there's something that you have a special need for, we'd love a chance to, to pray with you. And so they're going to go ahead and they're going to lead us in a song behind us. But let's, let's just start thanking God. Thanking God for the treasures in the darkness. Jesus' name.